0: Heritage Park Baptist Church, we make apprentices to Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit heritagepark.org. Well, good morning again, everyone, and again, special welcome to those of you uh, watching online. I'm grateful that you have joined us. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in the book of Matthew, chapter 6. If you uh, are a user of the Bible app, please feel free to uh, log on. You can find our live event, track along right now. We've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, and in doing so, what Jesus has been doing is manifesting the kingdom by bringing wholeness to people through his amazing power. And then he paints a picture for us, a vision of life where we can live according to uh, God uh, and how he wants us to live in light of his kingdom. So this is the kingdom manifesto. He calls for our intention to do so. He says, hey, this is the picture of life as it could be. Do you want to be those people? And our hearts respond, God, we want to be those people. We want to be those people. And so then he works us through a process of how we go about living that out. Um, He he addresses in chapter six, he addresses three particular uh, things as we kind of get going here. Uh, One is um, he addresses the practice of generosity uh, because giving breaks greed. That was last week. Today, he's going to talk about Prayer and how prayer will break off of us a kind of self-reliance that we are prone to. And then in a few weeks, we're going to talk about fasting uh, as Jesus will help us understand that fasting uh, can, can help us break off those appetites that think that, you know, we always should get what we want. So um, g- greed and materialism, uh, self-sufficiency, and appetites. And those were really big problems in the first century. But I know here in the 21st century, those are not issues at all, right? Okay. It sounds to me like Jesus lives down the street from you and me. That's what it sounds like. Like he's a suburban with us. And so, uh, and so I just want to offer to you that I think Jesus knows what he's talking about. Um, he prescribed for us, if you will, this, this triangle, um, this is a picture, uh, just as a reminder of how, uh, we can grow spiritually. All three components are essential. So don't, don't pretend you only need two of them. Uh, or one Let, let's work on all three the, the, the foundation of which is the word we receive the word through preaching and teaching we um are uh, we study the word and read it on our own we study it in small groups and in other places we we are people who are marked by the word his word our hope secures that's what we just say we're people who marked by the word. Secondly, on the left side there, there are practices that we involve ourselves in, that we engage in because those practices shape us. And this is the section of the Sermon on the Mount that we are studying right now, these practices. And then lastly, these trials, um, there are things that God will teach us in the school of trials that he will not teach us elsewhere that we cannot learn. So it's good to learn them and good to learn them the first time. Who's with me? Yes, it's better to do it that way. Uh, We we opened last week with this question, how do these practices work? And I just want to give us just 30 seconds, if you will, of review. uh, These four things, uh, or three things, excuse me. How do these practices work? If we're going to engage in these spiritual disciplines, as they're classically called, we've been calling them these practices, how do they work? First of all, doing what we can readies us to do what we cannot. I practice, if you will, what I can practice now. I do what I can in order to ready me to do what I can't in and of my own self and on my own power. Secondly, our practices help shape us. They shape us. If we run, if we exercise, they physically shape us. If we eat too many tacos, it shapes us, right? Right. So, so um, our practices shape us for good or for ill. So we want to practice the right things to help us along the way. And then thirdly, we need in our practice of these things, we need to uh, have both reason and rhythm. In other words, we need an appropriate rationale or reason for doing them. And we need a rhythm to doing so because it's the consistency of that content that makes us and shapes us into who God wants us to be. So here we are in Matthew chapter six, verse five. As we get ready to pick up prayer, here's where we go. Verse five. And when when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Jesus imports that word hypocrite from the theater into the moral life of the, of the people, and he says, you don't want to be a poser, you don't want to be an actor. You want to have congruency in your life. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, Um, go into your room. Um, Some of your older translations may have closet, something along the lines of go into your pantry. This is what Jesus is after. Lock the door, shut it, kick the kids out, right? Um, And pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. They think they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. So Uh, I want to address how prayer breaks self-reliance, and then um, we'll jump into uh, the text. Prayer does four things to break self-reliance off of us, and again, I know this was a big deal in the first century. Here in the 21st century, you know, maybe we can just, no, we'll need it. Here we go. Uh, First of all, it positions us as people who are petitioners. Prayer helps us because it it, it breaks self-reliance off of us because in prayer, we are consistently asking. That's what we're doing this is harder for some than others. How many of you grew up in a house where it was perfectly okay to ask and the perfect person was perfectly fine to say no. How many of you grew up in that house? A few. How many of you grew up in a house where like, oh no, 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 no. Don't ask them. It'll inconvenience them or something else. How many of you grew up in that house? For this second group, it's going to be a little bit harder, but, but through practice, you can learn to ask. It positions us as petitioners. Secondly, it sharpens the recognition of our own neediness. Jesus knows that we're needy. We'll talk about that in just a second. But in our suburban myopia, sometimes we forget just how needy we actually are. And this brings that neediness into focus. Thirdly, it reveals the chasm between what we can and what we can't do. I will give this to a perfectly uh, a pretty, well, I would say not normal because this isn't great. But I mean, here's a common, here's a common illustration. How many of you have ever prayed for somebody to change? Maybe change their mind, change their behavior, change whatever. you over here and you pray, right? And you recognize fully that you can't do a darn thing to help them change. And there is nothing that you can, so there is a chasm between what you can do and what you can't pray. It uh, brings that chasm into focus or reveals it to us. And lastly, it invites us. Prayer, what it does, it invites us into selfless participation in kingdom work. When we go into our pantry and we kick the kids out and we lock the door and we say, this is dad's time, this is mom's time to pray. What we're doing in that moment, what we're doing in that moment is a kind of selfless, um, private participation in the kingdom work. It's, it's not standing on a stage and preaching. It's not being noticed by others. And folks, there are going to be people who are a lot closer to the throne once we get to heaven than preachers because they spent their life praying in secret. Billy Graham, when, uh, after his ministry was done, but before he uh, kind of approached his end of life, they said, Dr. Graham, do you have any particular regrets? Oh, not really any regrets, but, but I do wish. I do wish I would have studied more and prayed more. That's what he said. It invites us into this kind of selfless selfless, uh, participation. So Jesus, what he's doing here at the beginning of verse 5, at the beginning of verse 6, at the beginning of verse 7, he is making an assumption. What is he doing? He is assuming that that we will participate. He assumes our participation in in our practice of prayer. First of all, because he knows, he says in verse 5, and when you pray, verse 6, but when you pray, verse 7, and when you pray, he assumes that we're going to practice prayer. He knows just how needy we genuinely are. He knows how needy we are. So good news, if you show up and into your, to your place of prayer and you start setting your needs before God, he is not going to go, oh my goodness, I picked a live one here. He knows exactly how needy you are. So he assumes that you will pray. And secondly, he assumes that we will pray because he knows that the only way to get better at prayer is to pray. I've got one who's trying to teach herself to jump rope right now. We could go to conferences on jump roping. We could read books on jump roping. We could watch a YouTube instructional video on how to jump rope. Dad can get out there and cheer for the jump roping. But the truth is, I mean, I can provide the step-by-step instructions. Okay, rope behind you, swing it over your head. When it clears and kind of gets into your periphery, jump. Jump. I can do all of that kind of stuff. But the only way that my eight-year-old knows how to learn to jump rope is what? You you get out there and you try to jump rope. And you swing it over and you hit yourself in the shin. And you're like, I'm never doing this again. And then you step over and you do it again. You get one foot over. That's worth celebrating. Amazing. And then you get both feet over. You're like, oh, this is good. This is good. And then you fail again. And then you finally figure it out. We could go to conferences on prayer. We could read books on prayer. We could write blog posts about prayer, hear sermons on prayer. We could do any number of things. But Jesus knows that the only way to get better at prayer is to pray, is to pray. And sometimes our best efforts end up with the jump rope smacking us right in the shin. But we get up and we do it again. So to whom are we praying? That's the question of the day. To whom are we praying? Jesus gives two answers one in five and six, and one in seven and eight. First answer is this You are praying to the God who wants to be found. Look at verse five. And when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, don't be like the actors or the posers. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say they have their reward. Jesus starts out with a warning shot. He goes, Hey, when it's time to pray, don't worry so much about what the other people around you are thinking about doing, um, acting, responding. Just, just you're talking to somebody. um, and so you want to be engaged with that person. You don't want to always be looking over the shoulder to see what's going on. You, You want to be engaged with that person. Don't be like the hypocrites. They pray to be heard and they are heard. And the reward that they wanted to be applauded by men is the only reward that they get. There's nothing of the kingdom in that. Nothing. Instead, we're praying to our God who wants to be found. Look what he says in verse 6. But when you pray, he tells you exactly where he wants to meet you. When you pray, go into your room, to your pantry, shut the door pray to your father. And then don't miss this. Who is in secret? Where is your father? He's in secret. So you need to get to the secret place in order to meet him. God is in secret. So we go there to meet him. He is in secret. And so we, we block out things. We clear some space in order to meet him. Now, as for some of you, this is a little bit further back than others. But there was, back in your dating days, there were a couple of ways that you could uh, pull this off. Number one was to just walk up to the girl, and I'm a guy, so I'd walk up to the girl, and I'd say, hey, would you like to go to dinner sometime? And then you face that moment of, you know, is it gonna be, is it not gonna be, yes, no, eh, we'll see, I mean, like all of that. Uh, or the much wiser move, and frankly, more social, there was a safety in this move as well, a little bit safer, um, was to get a group of your friends together, and you, 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 back in college, you go to Chili's, right? And you'd show up, group of 12, only order chips and salsa. Your whole order t- tab was, you know, $1. fifty-eight or something like that. Um, you'd push three tables together and you'd have kind of a meeting that looked a little bit um, like this right here, where you're sitting there and you're talking and you're yapping and having fun and good times. And, and you, you wanted to make sure to include the person that you were interested in. Yes. Who's with me? That was part of the deal. And, hopefully you sat, you know, on the end of the table that was close to them and you could you could enjoy them and, and get to know them maybe a little bit. But, but the, a group setting like this is not the place where you get really get to know somebody. The place where you really get to know somebody looks a little bit more like this. And this is terrifying for some people. Because you show up and it's just you and the other person there, you and your date. You're like, oh my gosh, I've got to have four good questions that I can ask in case it goes quiet. I don't want to sit in an awkward silence. I don't want to just ask the question, oh, is your food good again? I don't want to do any of that. I just, I want to have, I want, this is a terrifying moment. Some of you, when God invites us into the secret place, close the door, lock it, put other things away. When God invites us into that place, some of you are absolutely terrified because you think... What will I say in this moment? He's going to teach us about that next week, by the way. Or what might he say in this moment? And it might be that one that is actually scarier. We're praying to the God who wants to be found. He tells us where he's going to be. Go to the secret place. I'll meet you there. That's what he says. You can enjoy and sort of know somebody when you're sitting around a table for eight at Chili's. But you really get to know somebody in intimate, intimate settings. There's a question that comes along and it's a legit question. It kind of flows out of what Jesus is saying here. It says something along the lines like this. Well, then should I actually pray aloud at all or in public at all? Are we breaking, you know, the commandment of Jesus. If we pray in here, no, we're not. Okay. Yes. You should pray aloud. Yes. You should pray in public. Yes. There are moments when you want to grab somebody else's hand and pray along with them. All of that's fine. If we haven't figured it out already, Jesus isn't giving us a bunch of rules. He's saying, listen, there is a heart behind the practice of prayer that uh, you don't want to lose. You want to be focused on God. Sometimes, yes, we need to be aware that there are others around us that we're praying with, but you want to be focused on God. He's the person that you're talking to. So I, I tried to think about some specific ways to encourage us in this practice of prayer. So here's some pastoral advice in the form of questions. Pulled from the text here, um, is there a time and a place for you to pray? Jesus says, when you pray, and then he says, go, go to your pantry, go to your, go to that room, lock the door, shut it, put people out um, is there a time and a place? Why? Because the routine and the rhythm of that really, really matter. I have a friend, he has a praying chair. Some of you have that. Some of you have other places where you consistently meet God. The routine and the rhythm put you in this particular place. I, for one, I will confess this, g- gladly so. I, for one, especially early in the morning when, when I get up to spend time with God and to pray. If I sit back down, my mind will either wonder or my eyes will close true story. So uh, my routine in the morning is I get up, put my tennis shoes on and me and the dog, we make the same 25 minute circuit. And that is my time to pray. That is my time to pray for all of you, to pray for my family, to pray for me, to pray for things going on in the world, to pray for God's wisdom, to pray for God's help, to, to enjoy being in his presence. That is my secret place. At at o:dark dark 30. When I get up, it's me and the dog and the one guy who leaves for work. And that's it. Is there a time and a place for you? One of the great gifts that you could give yourself is just time and a place. Put it on your calendar if you need to. This is my moment. I'm going to spend some time praying. Secondly, uh, this question. Are you free to pour out your heart to God? The reason why he wants to meet you in the secret place is because in that moment, in that table for two... Um, in in, in that pantry, so to speak, you can pour out your heart to God. Uh, The psalmist says it this way. This is in the Bible app. Psalm 62, 8. Trust him at all times, O people. Some of you are are, uh, at the good times right now. Some of you are at the low times right now. Either way, the Bible says, trust him at all times, O peoples. And then the next phrase, pour out your heart before him. This is why we go to the secret place. Because we can pour out our heart before him. What, what distractions or disruptions mess you up in prayer? The reason why I go walking in the morning is because I think better. I communicate better in prayer when I'm walking. Um, some of you need to leave your phone in the other room. That is a distraction for you. And so the best thing you could do for your spiritual life is to make sure it stays in the other room, wherever that may be. Where are you undisturbed? Uh, for me, my biggest challenge is not technology. It is hurry. I, sometimes I, I get so much going on in my brain. I, I just kind of walk through my normal prayer routine. Just I just, I'm in a hurry. You don't build relationship if you're in a hurry. So I have to slow myself down as I pray. Are you free to pour out your heart to God? Nobody pours out their heart if they're in a hurry. Are you free to pour out your heart to God? Third question, uh, are you in a conversation or are you going shopping? Shopping, you got a list and you got boxes to check. Here's what I'm doing. He wants to meet you in that secret place. And he wants to share things with you there. not To, to be with you there. And there are things that will happen. Yes, there are are answers that will come. There are visible effects for your invisible action. There are seen things that will change in the world because of your unseen action. That's true. But the greatest reward, he says, and your father who sees a secret will reward you. The greatest reward is not your answer to a, a particular request. It is his presence with you. You get to meet God and be changed by him. The spirit, Paul says it this way, that we have boldness and confident access in one spirit to the father through him. The spirit beckons us in. He, he calls us, he invites us in and Jesus grants us access to the father and the father receives us and hears us. The greatest reward is getting to be with God. So we don't go shopping. We instead or in a conversation with a real person. The question is, to whom are you praying? You're praying to the God who wants to be found. At his heart, folks, he is a relational God, and he wants a relationship with you. So he says, meet me in this secret place. And we can talk there. The second answer, though, is that we're praying to our Father. He says in verse 7, when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. They think they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. And he says, for your father, your father knows what you need even before you ask him. And for some people, when they hear God is your father, and we've said this before, we will continue to say it. We just recognize that it is part of our culture. When some people hear God's your father, that puts a serious amount of breaks on your spiritual life. Ah, God is my father. Because of the father that you grew up with or the lack of father that you grew up with, um, that image is, is a hurdle to get over rather than a help some of you grew up with dads who were awesome and that image is a help hey men if you're raising kids in here let's be helps not hurdles yes whole different sermon for a different day but let's be helps to our kids praying to the god who is your father he starts out in verse 7 and when you pray don't heap up empty phrases like the gentiles do what would some of those be i just give you an option or a few options here to think about um there are times when I, I think we are tempted to fill up the silence. We, we want to fill up the silence with, with our words. You're at the table for two and all of a sudden it goes quiet. What do I say now? And you, just, you start talking because you have to feel like you have to fill up the silence. Listen to me. Um, sometimes it's in the silence that God then speaks back to us. Um, another uh, way that uh, some people heap up empty words they have ongoing repetition of requests or uh, or particular phrases and so when they're praying I'm, I'm really not being judgmental i just i'm trying to help us to think here ongoing repetition of these things again maybe they run out of things to say and so they just start the list all over again i, I do wonder sometimes if god's not like hey didn't we just talk about that a second ago I think as we mature in prayer, we can get more confident in how we ask and when. Uh, thir- thirdly, uh, you, we we fill our prayers with throwaway words or phrases. Again, I'm not being judgmental. I just offer that there are times when we start injecting things into our prayers where you're like, uh... Who are we talking to here? And lastly, um, m- maybe we change our tone or our vocabulary. I grew up in a church where the deacon, after the offering, we sang the dex- doxology and then the deacon would pray for the offering. That deacon, it didn't matter who it was, the same transformation happened. Their voice dropped about an octave and they started speaking Shakespearean English. It was amazing. I mean, these are good old boys from small town East Texas. And all of a sudden, D's and N's were all over their life. Our charismatic friends, they talk about a prayer language. That was a whole different kind of prayer language there. So I heaping up empty phrases. Again, I'm not being judgmental. I just want us to think for a minute about that kind of stuff. But if we do that, what does he say? If we do that, we, we act like we don't know God. When you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. Those people who don't know God, they don't know who they're talking to. We're talking to our father, but they don't know who they're talking to. Why do they do this? Because they think that they will be heard for their many words. If we approach prayer this way, then we turn prayer um, into, a, uh, into a formula or into an incantation that, uh, whose efficacy depends on us saying it right or saying it enough times. Abracadabra. 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 And so we, we want and got to answer based upon how we say it or how many times we say it. That's not who we're talking to we're talking to our father. Don't heap up empty phrases. I want to just note here that this is very different than persevering prayer. Uh, Because um, there are times when God allows us to pray for things over over and over and over and over and over again to persevere in prayer. And in doing so, it not only shapes us, but shapes the situation that is to come. And I just point this, and I know it's in the Bible app. If you you have a book Bible in front of you, uh, a paper Bible uh, in Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells this amazing parable. I love it. Luke chapter 18. Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. That they should always pray and not lose heart. So what Jesus is about to say is so that we would continue to pray and not lose heart. Here's the parable. Verse two. In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me. Don't you love that? She keeps bothering me. I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. You get this picture, judge. And then this woman keeps showing up and he's like, you again? Is it you again? Oh, it's you again. Somebody keep her out of here. Oh, fine. Fine. Just give her what she wants. Verse six, the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. But what about God? Will not God give justice to his elect? Who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? What's the answer? No, of course not. I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Jesus tells this parable so that we will pray and not lose heart. And there are times when um, God lets us persevere in prayer because it's not only shaping us, but it's, it's preparing the situation that is to come. Listen to me, church family. Some of us approach God like, Oh, we just got to wear God down on this. No, 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 no. That's the way. that's, that's the, that's the point of Jesus telling this parable. There is an unrighteous judge who himself will be worn down. Listen, if God who is righteous and wants to do good and justice in the earth, hears his people pray, what do you think is going to happen? He's not going to wear down. He's going to get the scene ready to come through for his people. There, there's a difference. Heaping up many phrases is one thing. There's a difference between that and persevering prayer. And the difference is what's going on in here. And he closes that little teaching by saying, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? What kind of faith? The kind of faith that perseveres in prayer. God, you haven't given me an answer Yet. But I'm setting this before you again. Not because you didn't hear me the last time, but because I know you're shaping me and you're readying something else. And I can't wait to see how you're going to work this out, how you're going to do good, how you're going to bring justice, because you love that stuff. Can't wait for you to do that. Some of you have been praying for something for decades. You measure it in decades. And I just want to say to you, keep persevering, because what God is working out because of your sowing in, it's going to be astounding. A couple of questions that follow here. Should then I pray scripted prayers? So again, it comes kind of right out of this text, like don't heap up empty phrases. Should I pray scripted prayers? Um, I I want to answer that with uh, just some ideas, some reflections. Number one, the longest book in the Bible is a book of scripted prayers the book of Psalms. And if you are learning to pray, let me invite you to pick up the book of Psalms because it will be your best friend. In the highest of highs and the lowest of lows, in my life and journey in learning to pray, the Psalms have absolutely, without question, been my best friend. They, when I don't know what to pray, they help me know what to pray. When I run out of words, they give me words. And they give me permission to pray things that I wouldn't necessarily think that I had permission to pray. There's some really honest, gut-wrenching stuff in the Psalms. And that gives us these, these, these prayers there. They give us that. A couple of other resources. I'll just point to... Very quickly, they help me think. And because I'm thinking better, I'm also praying better. One is the Valley of Vision. Uh, It's a collection of Puritan prayers. There's any number of things uh, that you could... see in here but it just like this and you read that prayer and uh for me my mind gets churning and because my mind gets churning i'm praying i'm praying better this valley of vision uh for some of you grew up in more formal religious settings you may recognize this the book of common prayer our anglican brothers and sisters they they use this on the regular this is a set of scripted prayers for any number of occasions and and it can be really helpful if you run out of things but um the the other thing that i would say i would actually point you to the next four verses (laughs) We're going to talk about this next week. When you pray, pray like this. Our Father, the one in the heavens, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I've got needs for today, so give me what I need for today. Forgive me of my sins and I'll be a good forgiver. Don't lead me into unnecessary trial or temptation. Instead, would you deliver me from the evil one? And Jesus provided a model for us to pray. Second question, should I pray scripture? Prayer. Second question flows out of this is if God already knows, why in the world would we ask? And the answer to that is actually very simple. He knows, so we ask. But because he knows, we're then free to ask. That's the way we need to be thinking about this. Not, oh, well, I'm not going to do this because God already knows. No, no, no. Ask because He because He wants a relationship to us, and because He already knows, that then frees us to ask um, these things of Him. And I'll give you this part of Henderson family um, dynamic. On the way home from soccer practice, a couple of times a week, we pull off the Gulf Freeway uh, and we turn on 518, headed towards home in West League City there. And uh, the first restaurant that is there at 518 in League City, I have failed in raising my kids. I mean, it's true because this one in particular, her favorite fast food restaurant is Taco Bell. No, not amen. Y'all people, y'all are... I'm praying for y'all right now. We got options. And it's Taco Bell? Okay, fine. So, our deal is, if she's hungry after soccer practice, which sometimes she is, when we kind of exit and make the run, all she has to say is, Daddy, could we stop at Taco Bell? What's my answer? Of course we can. Yes. You want something... Her favorite thing comes off the dollar menu. You want something from the dollar menu at Taco Bell? My answer is yes. Because she knows that I will say yes, she's free to ask. And because there is a Father who is in the heavens who knows what you need, listen, you are free to ask. You're free to ask. That's why we do it. His heart is relational. He wants you to be in relationship. If she doesn't ask, we drive right past it. We do. If we don't ask, we'll miss out on some things. But because she asked, I stop. My heart is to be engaged with her. God's heart is to be engaged with you. So much so that he sent Jesus to die in our place and for our sins and to rise again so that we could have life, a relationship with him that starts today and lasts forever and is indestructible even by death, eternal life. He wants us to know him. He wants to be found. At his heart, he is relational. And to prove it, he sent Jesus. And that's where we stop today. And it's where we pause to remind ourselves through the practice of communion. These are moments where we remind ourselves that God is a relational God. And he wants us to be in relationship